Well, good morning. Our reading from Scripture today is from Romans chapter 1. It's from Romans chapter 1, verses 15, 16, and 17 is what we'll be reading. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're in our second week of looking at the radical implications of preaching the gospel to yourself daily, of neglecting and doing away with the false idea that the gospel is just for unbelievers and that once we share the gospel with an unbeliever, they either accept it or reject it and that's kind of the end of the road for the gospel. Instead, what we're saying to ourselves is that Paul explicitly says here in the text that I'm looking forward to coming to the church and preaching the gospel to the church. And then he says that this same gospel is the power of God for those who believe. Believers, then, are the ones that take hold of the gospel and wield it and are suitably empowered by it for Christian living. And so with the help of many other mentors in the Christian faith, ranging anywhere from the the Apostle Paul to Augustine to uh, Milton Vincent to Jerry Bridges, I saw this book on the back table this morning, Transforming Grace by Jerry Bridges. And you'll hear some of the things I'm talking about today that are directly from uh, Jerry Bridges' book and thoughts on this. And it narrows down to this. God has given believers his gospel to empower us to live today. If we use it. If we believe it. That it applies to us in the Christian life. So we're going to look at what this sanctification by faith looks like here as it flows forth from these truths. And we're going to look at a variety of places in the scriptures as we do that and apply what Paul is telling us to apply today. Many Christians approach the scriptures, approach Jesus in fear. Uh, They were perhaps raised in a home where their father was harsh. And so it was only natural to imagine that a heavenly father would also be harsh. Maybe some of you were taught in the church, you had nice parents, but the pastor or leaders in the church preached a message of fear. That you need to be afraid because you're going to hell. For sure you are. And maybe, just maybe, if you do some of these right things I'm going to recommend, you won't. 
And, but even after you do, you could slip and fall again and be right back in the same mess you're in. And that just puts you in a life of fear. Okay? That may have been the message that you heard at a church. Or you may just bear scars and burdens that no one can see that didn't flow forth directly from uh, parents or from an abusive authority like a church, but it could have been another authority. But you may carry deep scars that's impacted the way you view God and his promises. That is, if all the promises in the world are laid before you, but you're not good enough for them, you don't deserve them, you're a bad boy or a bad girl, then they're not for you. I could have all over there at the table, teenage, teenage boys, listen to this. For after the church service, what if Domino's came in and just started piling up the pizzas over here? Piling them up, ten high on each table pepperoni, the real thin and crispy ones that crunch really good when they come in. But then I said, I'm sorry, you don't deserve them because you didn't clean your room last night. You didn't do the things your parents asked you to do this week, and so they're not for you. Well, first of all, you would attack me. Second of all... <laughs> You would know what I'm talking about right here. That there's all the riches that dominoes could pour out upon us and yet I can't get to them because I'm not good enough. I have not done the things that I need to do to be able to get them. Some, so some of you, as I preach a message like this and hopefully hundreds of more afterwards about the rich promises of God for his people, you may be having this internal dialogue with yourself that says, yeah, that's for others. I'm simply not good enough. I simply don't deserve it. It's not for me. Maybe it's for other people, but it's just not for me. But when we look at scriptures like Galatians chapter 3 and 4, don't turn there, I won't be exegeting. 3 and 4, that shows how we move from being orphans to slaves to being uh, from orphans and slaves to being adopted sons of God, that sort of fear cannot persist there for long. Surely we fear God as a deep and abiding and trembling respect before the most awesome being in the universe. You'd better fear him, but we don't fear him as Luther said in his introduction to his commentary on Galatians, we don't fear him like a man who's in a prison cell hearing the footsteps of his torturer coming down the hall closer and closer. That's not how we fear God. That sort of fear is banished as we understand who we are as adopted sons in the family of God. Now, I can hear someone, certainly not someone from this church, but I can hear folks perhaps listening to this message on the Internet, and they hear me talking about you guys being sons of God, and they might say, well, wait a second, Pastor. That's not very woke of you. Why can't that we be daughters of God? Wouldn't that be appropriate? Shouldn't you say, as some translations of the Bible do, like the NLT does in, in Galatians 3 and 4, they'll make that into something more generic, like child of God 
or when pa and when pastors are kind of explaining it, they'll say sons and daughters of God to reassure you uh, of, of how woke we are. Why can't you just do that, pastor? Maybe you're just a chauvinist. I most definitely am. I probably am some form of, of chauvinist, and I'm sorry when that happens. But I don't think that's the case in this situation. The scriptures refer to believers who are adopted into God the Father's family as adopted sons because under Roman law, that's the highest status a new family member could ever get. That's how elevated, how transformed our identity is as we enter into the family of God. We get the best place at the table. We get first dibs on the inheritance. And that's why, women, you're called sons of God. You're, you're adopted into the family as sons. Now, we men know what it's like. We've been called the bride of Christ for all eternity. So we're, we're with you here, ladies. You know, we know how you feel. We're going to look today, meditating on the gospel and how it transforms our walk. Paul is just setting up in the, in the book of, of Romans. He's setting up the gospel firmly implanted in the hearts of, of the church so that when they get to the application point of Romans chapter 12 and onward, they'll be ready. Again, you're not ready to live out the Christian life if you're still functioning under that old orphan slave mentality where you're functioning out of great gospel poverty and so everything you do is just another subtle form of works righteousness that I hope by doing this and running fast enough and hard enough that God will love me and care for me and so I'm going to do it. I've got to stop doing that. That's too much. <laughs> but everything we do, if we don't have the gospel implanted in us deeply, deeply, deeply and growing every day and echoing inside our mind between our ears, everything we do will be a subtle form of, I hope God likes me more because of this. I hope I make myself more worthy because of this. Even taking the Lord's Supper today, you can mess that up and I can mess that up by making it, as we talked about before, an offering of my piety to God. An offering of my sacrifice to God of myself. God doesn't need your sacrifice. He has the once for all sacrifice of his son laid upon the altar of history for his elect. How dare we think that he needs my sacrifice to be added to that. Oh, saints. Mm, we need to get that today. I need to get that today so bad. We're going to look at several points here today on how preaching the gospel to yourself daily is transformative. I'll be, again, drawing on the work 
of people like uh, that little book, Milton Benson, I talked about, the Gospel Primer. He's drawing from people like Jerry Bridges and his book, Transforming Grace, Tim Keller, Sinclair Ferguson, Jack Miller, all of whom I'll be serving up truth to you today from. Number one that I want to look at is that my, the first reason why you want to preach the gospel to yourself is that my sin is exposed by the cross of Christ. In the middle of the most beautiful gospel truths that, that, that Paul writes probably, Romans 5 through 8, the apostle Paul says, O wretched man that I am. Now think about that for a second. He's just bathing in the atoning work of Jesus. He's just rejoicing in the good news of the gospel. And you would think that reflexively he'd just be going like, Hallelujah, praise him. We just love you, Jesus. Thank you. And instead his sight turns inward, a wretched man that I am. Later on in 1 Timothy 1, Paul says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Next phrase, among whom I am the foremost. You see how that flows? When I go deeper into the gospel by preaching it to myself every day, I will begin to comprehend the depth of my sinfulness, but in a way that's not self-destructive. Because some of you know how dark and how deep the hole of self-loathing is. You know how gross and, and, and dark that pit of depression and loneliness can be when you perceive just what a big jerk you are. And it can be self-destructive. You can want to die in that deep, dark hole. And the only safe place that you can learn about your sinfulness is in the gospel. Man, am I going to make it through this without crying? My goodness. It's in the gospel because in the gospel there is no condemnation. No condemnation. And yet there is great revelation and revealing of my sin. You try to do it any other way. Go ahead. You'll end up laying on some couch somewhere, talking to a therapist, taking medicine, or drinking it away. One or the other, you can't handle the truth about your sin. I can't handle the truth about my sin unless it's in the light of the gospel. The gruesome death of the cross, like Jesus endured, is the only place, in light of that, is the only safe Place I can both be revealed as a sinner and yet be pleasing to God. It's because of his ghastly wounds that I can gasp in wonder at his grace poured out on sinners like Robert Barnes. For those of you who struggle with depression... Maybe, for some of you, it's just because you're insightful. You know what I mean? 
Because insight can be depressing when you really begin to see who you've hurt and, and, and that you meant it. It wasn't an accident. You didn't forget it. What You can't pacify it like that. You meant to hurt others, hurt people. And as you get honest about that, depression is the only appropriate emotional response. For some of us, for every look, as Robert Murray McShane said, when every look you take at your sin, take ten looks at Christ. Or as Jack Miller said, cheer up, you're worse than you think. (laughs) But cheer up, the gospel is bigger and better than you could ever imagine by a a factor of a thousandfold. So if I'm rehearsing the gospel daily and my sin gets framed, my story gets framed by that gospel, then I don't have to conceal my sin with other people. The other outgrowth of this of of my sin being exposed by the gospel is that now I can be honest with you about my sin. I don't have to hide the fact that I have sinned and failed and fallen because if I'm connected up to the gospel and preaching it daily, the same lips that confess my sin will be the same lips that confess Christ and Him crucified. And whoever receives that, when they see those things pushed together like that, as the Apostle Paul presents to us over and over in the Scriptures, their first response won't be, oh, you're a bad person. You've really messed up this time. I can't believe you're a Christian. No. If they're a believer, they, if they're Presbyterian, they won't do this. But inside, their, their hand is going to shoot up. They're going to be worshiping the Lord as they see that violent mixture of your failings and Christ's forgiveness. The gospel forces me almost to disclose my sin about myself. Because why would I present the gospel to somebody and not talk about my forgiveness of my sin? What could be more ridiculous than to try to present the gospel to someone in a full-formed way and leave out what he saved me from. Leave out my story of my failings and my struggles. Maybe you've been trying to do that. You've been trying to preach the gospel to yourself. You heard a sermon a while back about that and you've been saying, I'm going to do that. But it's been a bloodless one. One that doesn't include the story and the part where Jesus forgives you of your sins. And you enumerate those sins. And you talk about them in gruesome details to him. If we're going to preach the gospel to ourselves daily, it's going to force ourselves to talk about our sin daily. And to walk in repentant faith with those around us. Number two, 
I need to embrace, if I preach the gospel to myself, I will embrace the work that God has for me today. According to the scriptures, believers are to be zealous for good works and work according to his good pleasure. And Paul connects it to the gospel in Ephesians chapter 2 where he says, I'm saved by grace and not by works so that I might be God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good theology. Okay? No, wait, hold on. I have my glasses off. For good works, that I might walk in them. I may be lazy when I see what when I see what Christ did for me, I begin to be able to say with Christ, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That gospel-powered work, that Jesus-powered work is like food. It refreshes me. I'm talking to the women now. There have been many, many mornings when you, particularly you moms, have woke up and you have thought, your first thought is, oh no. And your brain begins to spin of all the things you've got to do today. You've got to take the kids here. You've got to go there. You've got to do that. You've got to go here. And then you hear a cry coming down the hall. Mom, there's spit up on the floor. And you know what's going to happen. The ravaging throw-up disease is going to go through the family that day. And so none of the things you were just thinking of doing, you're going to be able to do. Because instead, once again, you're going to be cleaning vomit up off the floor, the walls, wherever else it goes. That's going to be your day. I'm sorry, first of all. That's rough. And I know you've had to go through it. When God, when we get a grip on the gospel and the gospel gets a grip on us, even our labors, even the difficult ones like I just described, can become refreshing and strengthening to us. When we think about doing hard things like exercising, I was talking to Caitlin about this this week. You go out and you exercise like, like I obviously do. And you go out and you work out and you build up your big muscles like this. And you, after you do that, you feel tired, but you also feel energized. You also feel refreshed. You also feel stronger the next time you do it. That's what I'm talking about. That's what this gospel-powered work does. That's what working for God's good pleasure does for us. Because it it just isn't doing stuff I need to do. But it strengthens me. Because these are things, the things I'm doing are things that Jesus died so that I might do them. You mean to tell me, Pastor, that Jesus died so that I might take my kids to music lessons that they hate? 
that I might go to a job where people don't seem to appreciate me. That I, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Is that Jesus Christ died for those works. God's workmanship created in Christ for good works that I might walk in them. I'm saved by grace to do that. How precious you and I and the works he's called us to do must be if Jesus died so that we might serve one another, serve our families by these kinds of gospel-powered, grace-generated labors. Number four, I boldly come to God. I boldly come to God. In the New Testament, the story about Jesus' life and death and resurrection that transforms me in all creation is called the gospel of God. Okay? And as I'm preaching the gospel to myself, this of here is not simply to show that the gospel comes from him. Gospel of God, it comes from It's not just that. Nor that it's simply accomplished through him. It's also added to it that it ultimately leads me to God who is the great destination and goal of life's gospel-powered journey. This is what makes the good news truly great news because it's not that it just comes from Him or that it was generated from Him or that it comes through Him but that it brings me to Him. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once and for all, there's your gospel, so He might bring us to God. In John 14, Jesus says that in my Father's house there are many mansions, many dwelling places, Places And I'm going to go there and prepare a place for you. And listen to this. And receive you to myself. What, what a nice little clause to put there at an end. Because just going to heaven and being able to stay in a cool house overlooking the James River or the Jordan River, whatever is going to go on there, that would be cool, no doubt about it. But Jesus is going to... Be there, and we're going to be drawn to himself. He didn't, well, he wasn't just born and lived and died to be with us, but he ascended into heaven so that our invitation to come boldly before God is not in vain. Because when we get there, he's already been there making heaven ready for us. And the most important thing that is there is him. As as, as Hebrews 4 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in our time of need. So this boldness that is motivated by Christ already being there and beckoning us to himself, it's only possible through the gospel. Without the boldness, 
that comes from God's gospel welcome, frankly, a lot of stuff in this world doesn't get done. I mean, there will be a ton of life undone, victories unwon, money left on the table, babies never born, if boldness is not infused in our character and in our lives. <clears throat> now there's a way to be bold and be humble at the same time. That's another sermon. I'll get there. But right now, we're looking at the need to be bold, to move forward. To, and the only way you're going to bloom and flourish is to have the sort of confidence that comes from the gospel. Tim Keller says it like this. He said, The only person who dares wake up the king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access to the Father. It's for that reason that we can come boldly to him because he has placed us in his family, called us his sons, his children, and beckoned us to come to him. The gospel banishes fear by assuring us of his love for us that's based not on my works, but on Christ's finished work. And so preaching the gospel to yourself daily, how will I know that it's having an impact? How will I know that it's working? It will nourish a holy brazenness to believe what God says, enjoy what he offers, and do what, I, do what he commands. Now, do I deserve such successes in my life? No. Do I fail and flounder, even in the midst of those types of situations? Of course we do. But I just as certainly as I can boldly take for myself his, offered for, uh, uh, his offer uh, of the gospel to move forward in life, I can boldly take for myself his offer of forgiveness. That when I fail and when I flounder and when I fall, I take that with confidence too. And then I can move forward with true confidence, knowing that there's neither height nor depth nor any created thing can get in the way of the love of God that's in Christ Jesus reaching me and me reaching it. Placing our confidence in God, we live boldly. And God is glorified both in our confidence in him and not ourselves as we move forward and our confidence in his forgiveness when we fail and need him more and more. I've got several more points I can do here. I'll just do this one. Finally, We preach the gospel to ourselves daily so that God's fame and renown flow forth from our life. In Ephesians chapter 1, as he starts out, Paul starts out this book to his friends in Ephesus. He starts it out with 
the gospel. It just pours out. And over and over, Paul is writing that we are predestined to adoption as sons to the, and here's the phrase he repeats, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And he repeats that over and over, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of the glory of his grace, as he pours out the truth about God's rescue of us. And at the end of this section of Ephesians, <clears throat> Paul says, it's, uh, and, and, and then by the end of that section, I mean at the end of chapter 3, that that whole section is unto him be the glory. That's how he closes out that section. In 1 Timothy, when Paul starts out that book with the gospel spread forth like a banquet, he ends that section in verse 15 saying, It's to the king be the glory. Clearly, the gospel is generating an interest in the glory of God in Paul's writings. Understanding that I'm not the ultimate end of the gospel, but God's glory is, enables me to embrace salvation even more boldly. I can't tell you how sick I am of hearing ministers and songs and little things on the sides of coffee cups out there that tell me that, the, that, that, that Jesus dying for sinners is a way to show how much we're worth. I don't have pastoral language to describe how much I detest that kind of language and illustration. That's not what I'm saying today. What I'm saying is that when I ask, why would God want to save me? It is not soul satisfying to say, because I'm so awesome. That should not satisfy you. It should make you be feel kind of sick inside. When my timid, <clears throat> fearing, doubtful heart is struggling inside because of my sin, because of my fallen sin nature that's still attached to me, the last thing I can believe at that moment is that Jesus died for awesome people and it's because I'm so awesome that I'm coming to God. That's the end of the gospel, not the beginning of it. For true believers who read the Bible and see what it says about the gospel giving glory to God. The only satisfying question of why would God offer the gospel to sinners like me is to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's it. It can't be to the praise of the glory of any of you sweet people. And you're nice people. You're nicer than I am. But God doesn't offer you the gospel because of that. He wants to magnify the grace and the faith that he lavishes on sinners like me and like you. 
And so the more I embrace and delight and experience the gospel, the more I'll want to worship God because it won't be about me. Worship, my posture, my attitude will turn to him. The more I'll want to rejoice in him when I see that the gospel is really about him and that the cross of Christ is about him and exalting his glory and not my worth and my value. That's going to set me free to trust in the king of the universe. Closing, as Horatius Bonner said, terror accomplishes no real obedience. Suspense brings forth no fruit unto holiness, no gloomy uncertainty as God's as to God's favor can subdue my lust or correct my crooked will. But the free pardon of the cross uproots sin and withers its branches. Only the certainty of Christ's forgiving love can do this. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forever blessing, forever blessed. Your covenant people now approach you today. And we approach your table to the praise of the glory of your grace. We approach your table today as a response to this message. But we do not offer even that response as a sacrifice or to you. But we lay upon you more expectations by faith. That your Holy Spirit will come and lift us up to the heavenlies, to the holy of holies. So that we might experience what it's like to be seated at the right hand of God with our, our Lord Jesus Christ. And might know the great magnificent depth of his blessings. For his church. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.